a public service announcement with guitar. to Your Rights at Work. I'm Chris Scarlock with Ed Smith. On today's show, we're going to be talking with Economic Policy Institute, oh, policy, I can say that, an analyst, Margaret Poydock. I'm having trouble here, Ed Smith. Big yeah. drop in the number of striking workers last year. And in the second half of the show, David Paul Kuhn talks about his new book, The Hard Hat Riot. Nixon, New York City, and the dawn of the white working class revolution. But first, uh, first, a quick shout out to Krista Property. As always, a fabulous, fabulous show. And uh, to all the listeners who put her $200 over goal. Well done, Chris. Well done, listeners. Uh, and now we reset the clock. We are, of course, in our annual uh, winter pledge drive. You can give us a call, 202 588 Nine seven three nine. You can pledge online wpfwfm.org. What other station goes from a rock and blues show uh, to talking about your rights at work only here on WPFW? And and Ed Smith, I was thinking, I was listening to to Chris's show, and they were kind of talking about all the amazing amount of work uh, that Chris puts into that show. And it, it got me thinking about uh, the, the prep that we have to do, the, the booking, the guests, the, uh, the, you know, the sort of the, the minimal amount of research that you and I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't say minimal. I, I uh, definitely, my hat's off to Chris Garlock for um, often um, uh, scheduling our guests. And, you know, that's not only looking for guests that are timely, uh, uh, in this day and age, but also, you know, vetting them, making sure we've got good guests, solid guests that um, not only inform, but entertain. And I think we do that very well on a weekly basis. It's not easy. Think about four years of doing this over four years, maybe four and a half now. It's uh, over 200 shows, I would think. And uh, so kudos to you and uh, people. If you like what Chris has uh, developed and produced on our show and you like the way we do it, um, like Chris said, please uh, think about giving us a gift, a donation um, to help this uh, station continue to survive, yet thrive. Um, 202-588-9739 if you're in the area. 1-800-222-9739 if you're outside the area. And Chris, you know you can get on your iPhone or whatever phone and type in WPFWFM.org. Click on Donate. And I do know a, a good friend of mine uh, in the labor community reached out to us uh, last she week she saying, can she, can she, does she need to call in or can she just pledge? Does it have to be a, during the show? Obviously, we love to hear you call in during our show, but you can pledge anytime. Uh, we would ask that if you want to, if you support this show, just mark it that you support your rights at work. But uh, um, I've been very proud to uh, have been involved in this in this undertaking for uh now four and a half years or so 
Yeah, and, and it really, and I think, you know, one of the things that, that Chris and, and all of us talk about, and just a, it's always worth rem- remembering that, you know, it, there's a, there's a very, uh, very tiny, uh, core staff of PFW staffers, you know, who, who do get paid. The rest of us, and it's hundreds of us, uh, are volunteers and, and happy to do it. Um, so every dollar you give, uh, goes to, you know, keep WPFW on the air. And if the last four years of programs across the, the, the clock here on the station, uh, if, if that doesn't prove the, the need for WPFW. So, uh, please pledge, please be as generous as possible. Uh, like Chris, we have a $750, uh, goal this hour. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to even hit a thousand, even hit a thousand. Let's get a little, uh, little, and go in here and, and see if we can get a thousand for this hour. 202-588-9739. Or again, as, uh, as I said, you can pledge online at WPFWFM.org. And just a reminder, our theme, and it's a great theme, is building a better world one broadcast at a time. And who does? Yeah, I love want- that theme. It's cool, right? Who doesn't, who doesn't want to do that? Let's, let's build a better world. One broadcast. And, and you know, if anybody listening to Chris's show, it's a great blues show. Oh my and, God. Uh, so good. We're so lucky to have her as our lead in. What a, and, and a, and a great lineup we always have on Thursdays. Uh, uh, without saying, you know, without trying to go through everybody, I'm really, I like, the, I like Thursdays on WPFW, probably what my favorite, but there's so many other great uh, days. You know, Chris, years ago, when I first moved to the district, uh, I, as you know, and many of the audience know, I play in a rock and roll band or a blues there band, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, and often at night, I would drive back home from a gig around one thirty-two in the morning, and I would always seem to catch a guy by the name of Chester Chichester who would play deep jazz and tell stories about the recordings or tell stories about the artists. And I just loved him. And for years, I never signed up never never donated and um now oh, Ed, a free rider baby a free rider i was that's, a free that's rider. what we call you in the labor movement i was a free rider for probably about 10 years and then finally it dawned on me what am i doing <laughs> so and i wasn't rich but i pledged i think i pledged 35 or 50 my nice. first time and and it felt good it felt like i was part of something it felt like okay you know i did the right thing so you all, everybody out there knows that when you donate to charity, you actually feel good about it. It's a, it's like a two-way street. So if you haven't donated to WPFW, take lessons from me and do it, and you'll feel pretty good about yourself, even if it's 50 bucks. Um, hopefully that won't take too big of a dent out of your wallet. We have our first contribution uh, out of uh, Severn, Maryland for 240 bucks. And, hey, that's just 20 bucks a month. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, that just gives us 500 to go. So uh, we'll go ahead and go to our first guest uh, and then come back and talk some more about this. And, again, uh, please uh, listen in. You're listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris and Ed. Uh, now, Ed, uh, there's some data that came out last week from the BLS, that's the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I know you uh, often pour over those numbers. You're a big fan of the, the numbers from the BLS. Uh, but the folks who really take a look at it. Yeah, what a geek, huh? Uh, well, <laughs> the, the, these are the folks who actually know what they're talking about over at the Economic Policy Institute. Or Absolutely. And the thing that jumped out at me of their analysis uh, as you know, 2018, 2019, huge jump in the number of strikes. I mean, just 
you know, historic. We all got very excited in the labor movement. Uh, you know, people don't like to strike. People don't strike unless they need to. Uh, but obviously, with income inequality being as bad as it has been for a long time, it seemed like it was overdue. However, in 2020, that number dropped dramatically. And uh, we wanted to take a look under the hood on this because, you know, obviously there was a pandemic uh, last year, you know, ongoing and lots and lots of people out of work. So that's an obvious explanation, but it's a little more complicated. So we asked Margaret Poydock, who's been on the show before. Uh, she is a policy analyst there at EPI to uh, kind of break it down for us. So, Margaret, welcome, welcome, welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chris and Ed. So what is the story here? I mean, it's, it seems fairly obvious. You've got millions of people that are out of work or working part-time or, or, or whatever because of the pandemic. So, yeah, it seems like it's not a great time to strike, but that's not really the story, is it? No, no, it's not. Um, so like you said, last week, BLS released their data on major work stoppages. Uh, the data found that in 2020, 24,000 workers were involved in major, major work stoppages, which is actually the second lowest uh, count in the history of the series. Um, the wow. lowest actually being in 20 or 2009 in the depths of the Great Recession, about 15,000 workers on record um, striking. Um, but like you said, this is a major decline after a two-year uptick of strikes um, in 2018 and 2019, the average annual average was about 455,000 workers involved in major work stoppages, and that was largely contributed to um, historic low unemployment and stagnant wages. Um, I would also say that it was also largely contributed to the teacher strikes that happened during that time. Um, but like you said, we do have uh, low amount of workers involved in worker stoppages um, officially counted, but there was a lot of work stoppages and protests and walkouts that happened during the pandemic that were not counted in the BLS's data. Yeah, and talk about that, because that was when I was reading into your analysis, and, and, and I was kidding about the BLS. I don't, Ed probably does, but I don't look at those statistics, so they just make my head hurt. But I, I can I can always re, you know read the EPI reports you you, you write in and not only in in plain English but actually you kind of make you know dry numbers uh, exciting and dramatic for a, a layman like me so I just uh, I want to applaud you for that but reading in your report uh, you brought out you know really some really interesting facets of, of of there actually was a fair amount of strike activity last year which kind of blew me away yeah so. I would like to note that there is a major limitations to the major work stoppage data. Um, it only covers work stoppages, um, which in their terms, they are just including strikes and lockouts, but a lot of work stoppages are largely strikes, not necessarily lockouts. So, um, but anyway, they only include work stoppages that include less than 1,000 or more than 1,000 workers and last at least one um, work shift. And this means that there are many strikes, protests, and walkouts that are not covered by the data series. Um, kind of like uh, to hit it home, there's actually uh, the BLS note. There's BLS data that shows that um, only 60% of private sector workers were, are employed by a firm that hires or employs more than 1,000 workers. Um, so keep that in all in mind. But but because of great news reports, we found that there are there were many workers that had protested um, or walked out on the job for better pay um, and safe work, work conditions during the pandemic. Um, the great example of that is the May Day walkouts that happened with Amazon, Target, and Instacart workers. Um, 
There's also a great uh, protest that we highlighted through general electric workers that tried to save jobs that were being cut because of the pandemic. Um, yeah, so just to say there was a lot of workers that participated in work stoppages that were not counted in the BLS data. So I know Ed wants to get on this, but let me just uh, let me just ask a question here. Break why? What, what's with the thousand workers? What's magic about a thousand workers? I mean, I mean, you know, and Ed Ed can speak to this because he you know he represents workers. I mean, twenty people go on strike. That's I mean, I mean, obviously, larger strikes have bigger economic impacts. But what, what's with the thousand workers uh, number? Yeah, so I will be honest, I do not know what the 1,000 worker cap came from. It was only instituted in the 1980s. Prior to the 1980s, BLS did capture work stoppages that had less than 1,000 workers. Uh-huh. Um, so they did do, I guess, in the 80s, they did a revamp of the study and what they detail, um, and they put the 1,000 worker cap on that. All right. So the conspiracy mind here is thinking, well, you know where I'm going to go with this, Ed Smith. That's a, that's a way for them to go, oh, there's not so many strikes. When in fact, as, as your analysis shows, there were a bunch of people that, uh, went on strike or did walkouts. Uh, so anyway, let me, let me, let me yield to my colleague, Ed Smith here, who I know is champing at the bit. Yeah. Thanks, Chris. Um, and, uh, Margaret, thanks for coming on. Um, right. The thousand, uh, person limit uh i don't know if it's a conspiracy but i think about our units um years ago there was a strike at howard university hospital and it was only involving four to five hundred uh, nurses and healthcare workers that's a lot uh, of people that's a it lot shut of people down, it shut down the hospital and as you know anybody who lives in dc howard university hospital and howard university cuts a wide swath so um yeah it's a it's a um uh, a limitation. Um, but I have a couple of thoughts. So one, one thought is I don't think, uh, it was possible to maintain the 400 to 450,000, uh, people striking in 2018 and 2019. Um, but beyond that, I know that unions were not, maybe not striking as much, but we were definitely out, um, out in the street. Um, you know, black lives matter, uh, Immigration issues. Um, I know our union uh, was out during the pandemic on the street, and also uh, we did a rally at the at the mayor's house and the chancellor's house. And unions, I think, in the past few years, have been working much more closely with other organizations that um, deal with social justice issues. So, although we're not, although the data shows that there's not as many major strikes, I think that. The, my feeling is one of the factors is we're putting our efforts into, into community, uh, relations and working with other organizations and social justice. I, I wanted to know what your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's to Margaret. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, I don't yeah. care what Chris thinks. No, I don't. <laughs> no, I, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Um, that definitely is more have been we've seen tons of community relations, uh, especially this summer as well during the Trump presidency. Um, so I definitely agree with all you're, with all you're saying, Ed. Um, but I also I think this just also shows that we need to strengthen the right to strike. Like the, the, just because you're not seeing as much of it or it's not being captured as much as the BLS, it still doesn't mean that there doesn't need to be um, real teeth or just really strengthen the law, current law. Um, 
And we do have the Protecting the Right to Organize Act in the House that hopefully we'll hear a floor vote soon um, that would actually really strengthen uh, private sector workers' ability to strike. Um, two notes is that it would uh, ban um, permanent replacements and economic strikes, as well as lift the prohibitions on secondary strikes that are currently in place. Well, and, and talk a bit more about that, because I, I thought that was a, a really uh, good a good point to bring in that argument about the right to strike. And, and I think that people don't always understand, you know, a couple of things. First of all, there's a legal right to strike. And then as you know, and, and certainly Ed knows, a lot of people go on strike, including the teachers, uh, you know, who don't have a right to strike at all, period. Um, so can you just sort of spin out a little bit? about, you know, without getting too deep into the weeds, although this is a show that mostly lives in, in these weeds, um, <laughs> you know, what what are we talking about when we talk about protecting the right to strike? Yeah, so when we talk about uh, the legal right to strike, you know, it's for a majority of private sector workers only under current law, nationally under the current law. Um, and there are two types of strikes, uh, economic strike and unfair labor practice strikes. Economic strikes um, are when workers, you know, withhold their labor from their employer to demand fair pay. uh, um, And then a unfair labor practice strike is when workers withhold their labor um, when when there's a case where an employer has violated the workers' workers' rights, uh, such as like an unfair labor practice, like if a worker was uh, fired for unjust reason or um, there's unsafe working conditions. Uh, those are kind of the two basic types of strike um, there are right now. I want to uh, raise, these are a couple of things. Uh, I always have about, Margaret, we have a whole section where we talk about sort of labor news clips, and I want to throw these at you. And I, I know you're a policy analyst, and so these may not technically fall in your area, but uh, I wanted to sort of toss them at you. These are two things that came up this week, you know, that are headlines. One is, uh, and I saw this, and I thought I must, I had to rub my eyes, Amazon's offering $2,000 resignation bonuses uh, to, to the, you know, there's this big organizing drive, you know, obviously in Bessemer, Alabama. Ed, Ed's laughing his head off, right? I and didn't so, hear about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're offering, you know, folks a $2,000 to resign. I believe the idea is this is a mail-in vote that's going on, I think, for six weeks or something. I think it goes through the end of March, right? Yeah, March 26. So I believe, and this, again, this is into the weeds, but that's where we live on this show. I, you know, in, I believe the deal, as you know, one of the things that happens when, you know, one of the first things happens when you organize a union is the next thing is uh, you got to define who, who's actually gets to be in the union. And, and of course, management fights to, uh, you know, to try and, and limit that. Uh, and and the, and uh, the, well, actually, it can go both ways, right? It's, it's sometimes, you know, some, yeah. there's a big fight over who gets to be in the union. And I believe what Amazon is trying to do uh, is just get people to uh, hopefully, obviously, the union supporters to take that $2,000 cash and walk away. Um, and, and so what what I mean, that just sounds like the kind of thing probably the product doesn't address because whoever thought of such a thing. Right? I don't think we've ever seen this before. Um, uh, so let me throw that at you. And then the other thing, and I just saw this, it just came out, I think, yesterday McDonald's, McDonald's, and like McDonald's, you know, Ronald McDonald, Happy Meals and all that, they have a secretive intel team that spies on Fight for 15 workers. And 
you know, we've seen this kind of stuff by bosses who hire. I think Ed, you and I were talking last week about, you know, Amazon, you know, paying union buses, was it $400 an hour to, you know, go out and, 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 uh, you know, talk anti-union smack to their workers. Well, six, $700 an hour at the minimum. Oh, okay. My bad. <laughs> 400, 700. I mean, you know, <laughs> right. You know, once it gets over, you know, $15 an hour, I kind of lose track, right? <laughs> But Margaret, are these the kind of of things that we're talking about? That, that why the Pro Act is necessary? Yeah, I mean, these are two examples of the many things that are still legal that employers can do to um, suppress workers from joining a union. Um, to address the Amazon uh, situation, I believe the Pro Act does make it so it's the bargain unit; they're the ones to decide. Who is in, who is who is in the unit versus the employer picking and choosing and really right. gerrymandering who's in the unit? Um, and then in the McDonald's case, I, the Pro Act codifies the persuader rule, which um, was a DOL rule that mandates um, employers to disclose if they've like hired any union busters and how much they've disclosed um, <laughs> in that. So I, I would say the result the the main thing about the PRO Act is it does definitely restore uh, workers' uh, collective bargaining rights and ability to form a union, and those are just two examples of how um, the PRO Act would solve these, like, legal, the totally legal things that employers can do to suppress unions. Yeah, they'll still do it, but now we'll have better rights to fight. fight it. Uh, you know, Chris, uh, it's interesting. I, I wasn't aware of the resignation, you know, checks offered. I'm sure that they have their suits paid at, like I said, six, seven, eight hundred dollars an hour have, that have done the research on this. But to me, that could backfire on um, really? an employer. I'm giving you two thousand dollars. Well, if I don't really care about the union and I was going to vote anyway, but I, you know, two thousand dollars looks good to me. I, I don't know. Maybe, I'm sure that they've done the research that I haven't. I'm just thinking off the top of my head. If I'm a union supporter, I'd be saying, hell no, I want the union in and I'd vote for the union. If I don't care or I'm leaning no, I might take that money and then I don't have to worry about voting one way or the other. I don't have to worry about this whole BS. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, and to, and to the broader point, you know, to me, and I think, I think I heard, you know, the, uh, the union, the RS, RS, WSU, uh, this organizing them, you know, the things that Amazon has been doing, uh, have just shown how desperate they are. And, and also, and Margaret, I know you know about this, uh, you know, one of the strategies that, that bosses do is they do a lot of the stuff that's either, you know, in, 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 in at best case, in, in sort of questionable area, if not obviously illegal, because, Ed, as you know, you got to file charges, you got to, you know, the charges have to be investigated. We're talking about months, if not years of investigations. Yeah, you know, we, had a, we had a six-year legal battle back in the 80s when we tried to organize ANOVA. Fairfax. They fired mm -hmm. one of the lead organizers. She got her job back, but we didn't win the election. Right, right. Well, Marga, uh, you know, as always, uh, EPI doing just fabulous work, as I say, breaking it down for, for uh, you know, the experts. I mean, obviously, a lot of 
uh, policy folks do turn to you, but also just for uh, for folks like us out here trying to just trying to understand it as as laymen, it's really really helpful. So thanks for all your great work, and I know you're also a member of, of one of my favorite locals, NPEU, which is uh, that's all that nonprofit organizing that uh, has been going on uh, has been just fabulous. So thanks for uh, thanks for being part of that as well. Thank you for having me. All right, that's Margaret Pordach. She is at the Economic Policy Institute there at epi.org. Lots more great stuff. Uh, And speaking of great stuff, we are $270 from our hourly goal, and it is only 24 minutes after the hour. So bingo bell to uh, all of our great supporters out there. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You are supporting your rights to work, and you're supporting... WPFW. And and as we were talking about, you know, I I just can't think of another station where you can listen to a great blues show on your lunch hour uh, and then stay tuned to hear about your rights at work, uh, which is what we talk about every Thursday for, you know, the last five or so years. And, uh, you know, go ahead. I jump in. I'm not sure. Did we, uh, was this an anonymous pledge or was it, uh, did someone uh, have their name on it? I didn't get that information uh, i think that was an anonymous pledge uh but uh, we we love all our listeners uh, anonymous or or not so so thank you for for that um, well you know and i appreciate someone anonymous um uh, you know you don't get to say their name out there but whoever you, whoever was the pledge we really do appreciate it we appreciate each and every one of you whether you choose to remain anonymous or let us know who you are it really does matter and and I will say, you know, anytime somebody pledges even $35, that pledge means a lot to us. It means as much as a $350 pledge, except for the money. <laughs> I think P- PFW loves the larger contributions, so keep them coming, right. folks. As I say, we've got just 270 to go. That could be one <laughs> contribution right there. Um, and, and there was a, the, our, our anonymous supporter uh, did have a comment, which is that they love the show. So we, we love you right back and, and thank you for that. Uh, and, and again, where, where are you going to hear experts like Margaret Poydock? She's been on our show before. We've had lots of folks, you know, like Margaret, who, as I said, you know, what I love about Margaret, what I love about EPI, uh, as somebody who does, my head starts to swim when I see too many numbers. Uh, but she really breaks it down into yeah. real terms for us. And I, I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, that's what's really kind of fun about some of these policy geeks, if you will. The, the really good ones come on and, and say, this is a story through the telling of numbers. And they can absolutely. do it. And they can do it in a really good way. So I really appreciate that. Hey, uh, before we queue up some music, Chris, Let's just get one sustainer pledge at twenty five dollars a month. Yeah, twenty five bucks a month, and we're good Perfect. to go. And then let's get more, and then in the back half of the hour, don't stop. I, 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 I'm saying let's go for a thousand this hour. Let's up. And, and let me just say that that uh, the overall, you know, the, the overall PFW drive is is really doing well, and that's just a testament not only to the fabulous programming. Uh, across the station, but also to all of you listeners out there um, who I know, you know, just like Ed was saying, longtime listener, longtime, you know, love, love the shows. 
and then finally stepped up and dug into his own pocket. Uh, and then ultimately, uh, you know, is now, you know, giving a, a bunch of his time, you know, to be a, to be a co-host here on the station. So, you know, it's a, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool progression. Who, who'd have thought, you know, back in the day, Ed, when you were just listening that one day you'd be co-hosting a show here on WPFW. <laughs> your mom, your mom must be so proud. <laughs> especially with you, Chris. I know, right? <laughs> Uh, I had to go through a bunch of auditions, but oh, yeah, he's the guy. Yeah. Hey, I see, by the way, uh, on our uh, thank you gifts, what's this uh, concert by Ed Smith? Is that you or is that some other Ed Smith? Such an unusual name. Uh, you know, I, I, I saw something in the chat on that from Mike. I don't have any idea what he's talking <laughs> about, but, but you know, I, I'd be open to that. I see uh, it, too. Here, a 30-minute. out, but. Uh oh, is that is that is that the voice of God? Is that, that is the voice it's, of God? That no. sounded right. like the voice of God. No, I it's, very, it's just oh, Jerry. It's just Jerry. Okay, but I see enough. it also. Like, it yeah. says solo concert, a thirty-minute solo concert by Ed Smith for a pledge yeah. of one hundred fifty dollars. That's a sustainer pledge of twelve dollars and fifty cents right. a month. Ed, it's on you, sir. I, I must. <laughs> did, did I? Did I? You know, was I dreaming when I did that? No, I'd be fun. I'd love to do that. <laughs> of course, it would have to be a Zoom solo concert. We can do um, that. For now. We can do but, that. Uh, or maybe later we could do it in person. Yes, we can yeah, do that. Yeah, let's do that. That's very cool. I, uh, man, I'm, I'm almost tempted to do that. Get a little solo concert with that. Because Ed's band, i got to tell you, I've seen him live. Uh, will, will you wear your bandana, Ed? Is that Or is that extra? That's to keep sweat out of my eyes. Ed, so, forgive me. What do you play, whether sir? Whether it's a hat or a bandana. Ed, I've forgotten what you play. What's your instrument, sir? Oh, he plays guitar, man. He plays I the play guitar. guitar and a little bit of mandolin, mostly guitar. I thought you were I've a bass never player. seen you play mandolin in my life. Yeah, I don't play it much. I'm not good at it. <laughs> That's a good reason. Not to, but I tell you what, you you play the heck out of the lead guitar, brother. So this Thanks, brother. This amounts hey, to listen, a mystery uh, offering. Right? This is a monster mystery offering. Absolutely. So let's still, do it. Let's we, do it, folks. Yeah, so still, 202-588-9739 is the number to call to pledge your support for WPFW and for this show, Your Rights at Work. I got to say, I've not heard a show like this anyplace else. We are able to do this only by your good graces. We don't have any ad agencies, no commercials, no corporate sponsors, and we're able to speak truth to power because we have your support. So we come to you four times a year and give you the numbers to call to become a member of WPFW and pledge your support. 202-588-9739 is the number to call to do so. If you're out of area, you can call toll-free at 800-222-9739. We're also available to you on the web, on your web at wpfwfm.org. You'll see a Donate Now button. You can click that button to pledge quickly and securely. Also, 21st Century, we're available on the Cash app. Type in dollar sign WPFW and make your donation there. No donation is too large. No donation is too small. Again, you can become a sustainer for as little as $12.50 a month, which adds up to $150 a year. But we need your help. We've been doing this for 44 years. Uh, this is a battle mm -hmm. that has been going on. And I mentioned this the other day. If we were a state, if Washington, D.C. were a state, we would have a public when, brother, broadcasting when? commission. And we don't have a public broadcasting commission because we're a district. So we did it 
ourselves. We're not waiting for somebody to confer statehood upon us. We built our own public broadcasting system right here at WPFW, but we need your help to continue this. Please make that call, 202-588-9739, out of area, 800-222-9739. We have gifts besides the 30-minute concert from Ed Smith. (laughs) We have gifts. Um, You can get the WPFW Jazz and Justice face mask for a pledge of $40, locally designed, printed with the WPFW logo, They look great, and it has the Jazz and Justice moniker on it. They're soft, they're breathable, they're wicking jersey material, so you can stay dry and cool. And I've discovered that if you wear this mask on top of your N95 and you're out in the cold, your glasses don't fog up. It's not scientific, but it works for me. So it's a suggestion. Get this mask. It does work. And Dr. Fauci did say double masking is the safest way to go. We also have the Black Lives Matter face mask for a pledge of $50, also locally designed and has the WPFW logo and the Black Lives by name on it, the Black Lives Matter by name on it. Please give us that call. I will say it again, 202-588-9739, toll free, 800 222-9739. We do need your support. And Ed needs to use, needs for you to sign up for his concert. Right, Ed? Thank you, Jerry Paris. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry Paris. All right, when we come back, David, Paul, Kuhn, and the Hard Hat Riot. But first, I'm looking forward to that one, baby. A little strike music for you. Check it out.
guitar solo. You like that. You're listening to Your Rights at Work, Chris and Ed, and a little funk music there for you. I don't think we're going to give uh, Krista Property too much of a run for her money, but, uh, you know, a little little 1970 funk for you there by a little group called The Union. And, Ed, uh, these folks, they never performed live, but you might know some of these names. All-Star Ensemble, Sterling Smith, Al McKay, Ed Green, George Semper, Phil Kelsey, and Gail Anderson uh, was released in 1970. And besides the fact that it's called Strike and it's funky and I liked it, uh, 1970 is the year that uh, this this our next guest is going to talk about. Uh, because in May of that year, uh, construction workers in downtown Manhattan beat up, and I mean beat up, uh, young men and women who were protesting against the Vietnam War, which uh, was killing working class soldiers who had been drafted into the war. Now, so you got hard hat workers, you got hippies. You might think that these would be natural allies against uh, the folks on Wall Street nearby, but instead they were pitted against each other. And our next guest, David Paul Kuhn, has written a book, just came out last year, called The Hard Hat Riot. Uh, and this is the story of when the white working class first turned against liberalism, siding with the party of big biz, paving the way for presidencies from Reagan to you-know-who. David Paul, <laughs> welcome to Your Rights at Work. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Did you uh, enjoy a little funky lead-in for you there? I did. That was a, prof- that was a, a professional segue you just pulled <laughs> we, we pull it off every <laughs> once in a while. Listen... Uh, so that 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 uh, day in 1970 is is fairly well known to some of us in the labor movement. I I don't know that a lot of folks outside the movement know that much about it. Can can you sort of sketch out what happened on May 8th, 1970? Sure. I mean, it was it was really a traumatic day for the labor movement in the weeks and months after because of the of what it symbolized. But to pull back the lens a little bit and give some context. Uh, a few weeks before, on April 20th, Nixon pledges the withdrawal of 150,000 troops. Uh, there are headlines across America that Vietnam is all but over, you know, quoting our Chicago Tribune headline on the front page there. Um, you know, 10 days after Nixon pledges this withdrawal, he announces the expansion of the war in Cambodia. Activism explodes from Oregon State to the University of Maryland. ROTC property is vandalized, firebombed. Um, it's college chaos like we ha- like nothing we see today in terms of strife on campus at a at a college no one had heard of or very few people had heard of called kent state in ohio activists that saturday ransacked the town the national guard gets brought in by monday may 4th uh on a beautiful day um gunfire and gunfire lasted 13 seconds four students are shot dead and uh, nine are wounded by the Nash- by guardsmen. The Dow Jones suffers its worst daily loss since JFK's assassination. Cha- chaos ensues on campuses nationwide. And the anti-war movement really escalates as never before. And I give that context because the anti-war movement escalates and so does a reaction to that anti-war movement, an anti-anti-war movement. So in New York City, a center of protest was Wall Street, uh, much more so than today. New York City had some 40 colleges and universities in those years. Uh, it's obviously a, one of the birthplaces of the counterculture, a very, very zealous, powerful new left 
and um, avant-garde is, of course, based out of New York City. And basically, in down on Wall Street, it become a, a haven for daily protests against the war. But above those young, mainly students, uh, anti-war protesters, are construction workers building a really the largest boom of construction and skyscraper building since the Great Depression. And it's the second great skyscraper age in New York City, including most famously the World Trade Center is being built. And so by a coincidence of history on Wall Street, really in the lower Manhattan or the financial district, you have the icons of the old left reaching back to Franklin FDR, and you have the icons of the new left. And they just by happenstance happen to be confined into this small colonial era space that is lower Manhattan and um, what happens by May 8th after tensions had sort of escalated throughout the week, little fights, little scuffles um, is the hard hat riot that Friday coincidentally the 25th anniversary of VE Day uh, construction workers came down from scaffolding and from the World Trade Center and towers from the Bowery to Battery Park there's no Battery Park City then uh, and they um they first hundreds and then thousands are involved in a massive melee that in, with tens of thousands in the streets and students are beaten some bloody and left unconscious in the dirty streets a siege city hall it's uh, it's chaos uh, in uh, a center of of uh, in this in the center of the, the uh, Western economic world at the time. Well, David, I mean, the reason that this has been, I mean, frankly, it's always been a sore point. You know, we do a labor history thing, you know, in, in our publication. And every time, you know, we talk, I mean, and as you've seen, you know, one person is right, it's another person's rebellion. I mean, you know, words yeah. words matter and it's a matter of perspective. But, you know, uh, and it was, it, this was uh, pretty much entirely uh, building trades folks, uh, I think. Uh, certainly 1970 would have been almost entirely white building trades folks, right? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. And not just, but also we should add, since we, since the word white is, is, is used in a modern context today, these are, you know, disproportionately ethnic whites, right? Descendants of Irish, Italian, Polish, Jewish immigrants, etc. Um, they are not children of the, these are not the whites of the wasp establishment that still ruled over Manhattan at the time. So, just want to make that clear. These are not people that felt powered, but they were a rising middle class. The trades, as you know, and obviously many of your listeners know, had really reached the middle class at that point. And if you had risen in the trades, you could secure a really amazing middle class life in America at that point. And um, so many, some, many are working class, but many are middle class. And at that time, it's very important when we talk about education as a mark of class, you know, that you could attain a lower middle class and middle class life with a secure job in the, you know, in what was called, you know, the, the prince of the princes of labor at the time, for sure. But I wanted, you know, and as I sort of tried to frame it at the beginning, I mean, you know, from my perspective, I'm looking at it and literally you're within, you know, a stone's throw of Wall Street, you know, which is as always profiting off of war. And you've got, you know, these working class who may, may in, in fact be somewhat middle class or certainly aspirational to middle class, you know, fighting folks who are trying to end a war, which is killing, 
you know, some of those same folks were beating the hell out of him. And, and so from that perspective, this makes almost no sense, but I think your book really kind of makes sense out of that. And can, can you, can you kind of explain that for us? Yeah, well, it's, it's important. I think you just said it well. From that perspective, it makes no sense. And that's a valid perspective. But the other valid perspective that's true to history is that this was a class war. The Vietnam War is a class war unlike any war since at least the Civil War. In other words, those with less were dying, were not only dying more, they were far more likely to die and have, and face the combat and have the combat jobs that put them in harm's way. Um, to, and that was for black, white, and brown alike. Um, it was the white working class, um, Hispanics, then mainly Puerto Ricans at that time in American life, and uh, African-Americans who were dying disproportionately on the battlefield, and college-educated whites and the white upper class were disproportionately escaping this war, often through legal means. Uh, and at the same time, a lot of these, you know, most of these construction workers, some of whom were fresh from Vietnam, and some of the, many were the same age as these college students, uh, but others were veterans of Korea and World War II. And I emphasize that it was the 25th anniversary, 25th anniversary of VE Day, because even then, VE Day was barely covered in the national media 25 years after World War II. It's just stunning to me. And I only say that because these men felt, uh, you, you know, it, they they were, they were ambivalent about the Vietnam War. That's backed up by data. I try to note that data in my book, how deeply torn they were. Um, they didn't like the war, but they didn't, they didn't want to turn on the warriors to use a, to use a shorthand. And um, one reason I highlight this period, not only because it is the era when you have this fracturing of the old democratic left, but it's also that you, I, it's, it's also that you have, that it's important for the, to see how nationalism and ideas of patriotism were relevant and it helped unite that day. And I think many on the left would say tragically, it helped unite a working to middle class old labor of the Democratic Party with what turned out to be a lot of white collar Wall Street workers who joined in the riot. 800 right away started cheering and went to the back of the hard hats ranks. Basically, impetuously came office workers, clerks. Now, some of them were clerks. They're not all like the brokers, you know, wealthy brokers. Some of them were just clerks. Um, and, you know, we have to acknowledge that part of Wall Street is often also has children like labor who came from not college educated, not affluent backgrounds. So they may have had some class identity from their youth with some of these Wall with some of this, these construction workers. That said, nonetheless, you have a union uniting of Wall Street men and working men. Then a in, shocking phenomenon in American life for Nixon and his circle too, which leads them to see the hard hat riot and more so probably as much the ensuing demonstrations that we've forgotten to history in the weeks after as their opening to, um, to break up the uh, FDR coalition. All right. Let me just reintroduce you. You're listening to Your Rights at Work with Chris and Ed. We're talking with David Paul Kuhn about his book, The Hard Hat Riot. I'm going to go to Ed, but just a first reminder, we've got just uh, 10 more minutes to make our goal for the hour, 202-588-9739. That's 202-588-9739. And it's going to be tough to tear yourself away. It's a fascinating conversation. It's a fascinating book, totally, totally readable uh, about something, uh, you know, another one of those moments in history that, you know, too many folks 
uh, have, have forgotten or didn't know about. So 202-588-9739. Ed Smith. Uh, David, thank you so much for being on. This is a fascinating discussion, and, and uh, I'm sure the book is incredible. Uh, it's only 50 short years ago, 51 short years ago, coming up in May. And by the way, um, one of the things I like about PFW is music and our show. This The song Ohio was written by Neil Young within a couple of weeks after this incident and actually got put out in June of uh, 1970 and um, was banned in many, many radio stations, but had a lot of underground play. And it shows the interplay uh, between activism in the streets and the music. Um, I just, I just want to make that as a comment, but you know, there's so many questions I could ask you, but let me try to focus in on one. So you've got the trades um, pretty much overwhelmingly supporting the war and ultimately the Nixon presidency. In some ways, I see this as probably one of the, the schisms that has caused a decline in labor. There are many, there are many factors that cause a decline in labor, not the least of which is the, the, the poor laws. Um, but to me, that schism really, um, I guess failed, it, it defocused our, our, goals and interests about fighting uh, the employer, and it caused a lot of dissension within the ranks. I don't know if you have thought about that or, or wrote about that at all. Well, absolutely. Uh, that's a big re- First of all, ne- I, I'm biased, but the protest music of that era is has never been matched. And, <laughs> sure. never, and I'm a younger generation, but I don't think it, it certainly has never been matched. It's amazing. Anyway, I digress. Uh, I end the book in 1972 for a reason. Um, you know, two-thirds of this book is about the issues and episodic events that, that surrounded the Hard Hat Riot, that the Hard Hat Riot be captured. And it's really covering the years of 68 to 72. And I end with the McGovern campaign in the 72 days for many reasons. But one reason is I am talking about a class fissure in the Democratic Party in the beginning of it. And, you know, the Democratic Convention of 1972 was – for the first time, truly diverse and representative and belatedly, of course, of, of by race and by sex, but it was not by class. Um, the, uh, the uh, delegates in the 72 convention had 10 times the graduate degrees of the average American, twice the wealth of the average American. Uh, the uh, quotas had no quotas for Polish or Italians or groups that were, uh, were anything but part of the American elite. And, and this, this severing by class, I think this loss of class interest eventually in the um, Democratic Party and solidarity, I would say, irrefutably contributed to the decline of labor. And I think some, and I think, um, some very significant legislative losses from, you know, the, that the labor movement would see in, in the 80s and 90s to the present. David, we're going to have to wrap up, but you and I had corresponded over email on this uh, because obviously there are uh, some pretty, you know, obvious echoes of, of this, uh, you know, riot from 1970 with what just happened on January 6th. And, you know, I, I think you're still trying to sort of process the whole thing. I wanted to come at it from a little bit of a, of a different angle, maybe, and, and see if I can get your thoughts on it, which was one of the things coming out of the January 6th thing was 
you know, a lot, you know, and, 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 and with a lot of Trump supporters. I mean, Trump, you know, took a lot, frankly, of labor issues on trade, for example, on jobs, you know, and, and to our mind kind of perverted them, uh, but had a lot of, there were a lot of union members who voted for Donald Trump. And I haven't seen the breakdown, but I'm going to guess that there probably were a bunch of union members, you know, in that mob. Um, and, you know, which is an uncomfortable truth, right? And so, yeah, I'm just kind of, I think, I think sometimes it, it gets confusing, especially with class struggle in this country. Um, and I'm just wondering if you, if you have any sort of preliminary thoughts as, as we're all sort of processing through this. I, I, as you know, I'm hesitating because a lot yeah. more is going to be known, but it does, there have been reports that a majority of the, of those involved were under some financial strain. Right. Which, you know, the, and sometimes severe financial strain. And, um, and one child of that is extremism. So when I, you know, uh, we'll leave it at end conspiratorial views and that happens to anyone of all races. So, um, you know, I, I don't think you can remove economics from the social phenomenon of that day, but, you know, I don't know yet. And we'll find out in the years to come as I learn more and all of us learn more about the motivations and backgrounds of everyone involved to what degree, you know, this was pure political extremism and to what degree it, it was, um, it, it betrayed a, this, this rising wealth gap in American life and, uh, and, um, sort of how that manifests itself in a cancerous sense on, uh, in, a, in our political polarization. Well, David Paul Kuhn, it is, you know, it's a, as I can, it's a wonderful book. It's the hard hat riot, Nixon, New York City and the dawn of the white working class revolution. Uh, a lot more to talk about. I guess we'll just have to have you, uh, back on. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. All right. Take care. Take care. David Paul Kuhn, his book is The Hard Hat Riot. It's available. It's a great read. Uh, Ed Smith, oh, I, I, I know oh, I, 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 you'd enjoyed that. And, and I mean, it's, you know, we probably do a whole hour uh, just sort of unpacking some of that stuff. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, you know, I'm a fan of history, but that part of um, history, I was a young kid, so I didn't really live through it in a way. I was only six or seven at the time. Uh, but it fascinates me, the music, the, the, the arts, the culture, um, the, the Black Panther movement, all these different things, and they coincide. And, and um, But we can't forget that there was terror. And, and, you know, I can only imagine what it, would, what it must have felt like on the streets of Manhattan that day or across campus, uh, you know, certainly in Kent State. I just, you know, we talk about, the terror and difficulties in our lives. And, and, you know, certainly January 6th was pretty crazy and bad, but the late sixties, early seventies, this, this country was really torn apart in many respects. All right, folks, that's going to do it for this edition of your rights to work. So good to have Mike Nacella back on the boards and uh, thanks to everybody for their support this hour. They've still got a minute or two, 202-588-9739. It's how you make a contribution to support your rights at work and WPFW if you like what you hear, and we hope you do. Please give and please keep on listening. Ed, that's going to do it. You guys have a great week. We'll see All you right, on the brother. Side. Take care. Peace to everybody. This is a public. Announcements!